perhaps nations like Babylon or nations like Egypt, you'll find in their histories great depictions of their victories, murals and other artistic designs showing their conquering of other lands. But you won't find in them any signs of their defeats, their downfalls or their collapses. Ancient history is rose-colored glasses, so to speak, that everything is good and wonderful. That is, except for Israel's history. Israel's history is an ancient history that includes the good and the bad, the triumphs and the tragedies, the righteous and the wicked. Well, why? Well, because God inspired this history. He authored it, and He always tells the truth. And this morning, as we wrap up this book, we see the importance of history. You know, some people consider history just boring facts, dates you got to remember so you can pass the test. Other people think history is just about power and control because history is written by the winners. Others think history is important because we don't want to make the mistakes of the past. But God often calls his people to remember at least 38 times in the Old Testament, 18 times in the New Testament, we're called to remember God and His actions. Jesus called His disciples to remember His care for them in the feeding of the 4,000, to remember the Old Testament story of Lot and remember His words to them. And when we remember the past and remember how God has acted, it keeps us safe in the present. Remember, Israel, when would they fall in the wilderness? It's when they'd start going, oh, if only we were back in Egypt. They don't remember in Egypt. They had chains in Egypt. They were whipped because they failed to remember. They failed in the present. And so we've labored over these sermons to see God's interactions in the past, not just so we can learn some facts so that you can win Bible trivia next time you gather with your family, but so that we might come to know the God who oversaw this history, the God who was faithful to his word throughout. And in these last chapters, we're really forced to ask, is this the end of Israel? If you have the bulletin, you can see on the back, we're going to first look at Israel's roller coaster of kings. And we're going to kind of take an overview of first and second kings. So if you want, while I'm mentioning the other two sections, you could turn to the beginning of first kings. Then we're going to look at our verses today, mainly Israel's humiliating collapse, the 31st verse in chapter 23 through almost all of 26. And then we'll end focusing on four verses responding to their collapse. But first, if you haven't turned to 1 Kings chapter 1, and I'll paint for us the big picture. You may remember the nation of Israel has gone through quite a history before this. Around 400 years before this, Israel had requested a king, 400 years before where we are in our passage today. And God gave them Saul. But Saul was not loyal to the Lord, so God sought out a man after his own heart, King David. And David did what was mostly right in God's eyes. And so in 2 Samuel 7, he made this promise of an eternal kingship to David and his descendants, an everlasting kingdom. And then 1 Kings 1.1 is where we pick up. Now King David was old and advanced in years. And what happens to every human happened to David. He gets old and he has to pass the baton, so to speak. 
and he's going to pass it to Solomon. But he didn't just set up his kingdom. You may remember that he set up for Solomon to build a temple to the Lord. So flip over to 1 Kings 5. 5, for Solomon grasped this baton. And there in 1 Kings 5, 5, it says, Solomon speaking, And so I intend to build a house for the name of the Lord my God, as the Lord said to David my father, Your son, whom I will set on your throne in your place, shall build the house for my name. That then led, if you flip over to chapter 7, verse 51, where Solomon finishes the work. After seven years, chapter 7, verse 51 Thus all the work that King Solomon did on the house of the Lord was finished. And Solomon brought in the things that David his father had dedicated, the silver, the gold, and the vessels, and stored them in the treasuries of the house of the Lord. And this was not just something that they thought we should do for God, but this is something that honored God. And notice how he responds. Chapter 8, verses 10 through 11, as they're dedicating the temple, they bring in the ark, and then it says, 1 Kings 8, beginning in verse 10, and when the priests came out of the holy place, a cloud filled the house of the Lord, so that the priests could not stand to minister because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. God was pleased with this, and so he came in a unique way to dwell in the temple, in a unique way to bless this area. And so since God came to Israel, since Solomon was walking after the Lord, the nation was blessed. If you flip to chapter 10, verses 23 and following, we'll see the financial blessings and other blessings. 1 Kings chapter 10, verse 23. Thus King Solomon excelled all the kings of the earth in riches and in wisdom. And the whole earth sought the presence of Solomon to hear his wisdom, which God had put in his mind. Look down at verse 27. And the king made silver as common in Jerusalem as stone, and he made cedar as plentiful as the sycamore of the Shephelah. As we looked at these verses in months gone by, we noted that it seems like many, if not all, of God's promises have come true. Remember in Genesis 3, God promised that he would send one who would remove the curse of sin so God could dwell with us again. And now, God is at the temple, so to speak. God had promised Abraham in Genesis 12, 2, I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your home great, so that you will be, make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. And we just read of how Solomon was not only personally wealthy, but he made it so all around Jerusalem, everyone considered silver as nothing. Not only that, God promised King David that there would be a day where they would no longer be disturbed and in 1 Kings 4.24, it tells of Solomon having peace on all sides. It seems like Solomon has come and he's brought the fulfillment of God's promises. And yet, sadly, it doesn't last. As you well remember, tragically, Solomon loved women. And he had many wives and concubines. And as he loved them, they turned his heart away from God to serve other gods. Thus God caused enemies to rise against Solomon. Then under Solomon's son Rehoboam, he split the nation in two. God gave a man named Jeroboam the ten northern tribes with their capital in Samaria, whereas two tribes remained in the south with the same capital, Jerusalem, and they were called Judah. 
Yet though God clearly told Jeroboam that these ten tribes were given to him, taken away from Solomon because of Solomon's sins, notice what Jeroboam does in 1 Kings 12, verses 26 through 28. It says, And Jeroboam said in his heart, Now the kingdom's going to go back to the house of David. If this people go up to offer sacrifices in the temple of the Lord at Jerusalem, then the heart of this people will turn again to their Lord, to Rehoboam, king of Judah, and they will kill me, and to Rehoboam, and return to Rehoboam, king of Judah. We could go on and read of Jeroboam setting up a new priesthood, setting up new feasts, and he does all this because he thinks to maintain God's blessings, he has to do it. He won't trust after God himself and what God had promised. So soon after this, in 1 Kings 14, God cursed Jeroboam because of this sin. And Jeroboam's actions will be the constant barometer for the rest of the kings of Israel. If you read through First and Second Kings, you'll hear over and over this refrain. He, being a king of Israel, did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and followed the sins of Jeroboam. Now, there will be 18 kings uh, in Israel after Jeroboam, and only one of them, Jehu, shows any hint of following the Lord. Let's turn to 2 Kings, all the way through the rest of 1 Kings, to 2 Kings chapter 17, because then in 2 Kings 17, God sends Assyria in 722 BC to conquer the nation of Israel, to capture their capital, Samaria, and to take them into exile. And yet God is clear. This wasn't because they had some bad economic policies. It wasn't because they didn't get the best generals or they didn't keep up with military technology. 2 Kings chapter 17, verse 21 makes clear why Israel was defeated. It says, When he had torn Israel from the house of David, they made Jeroboam the son of Nebat king. And Jeroboam drove Israel from following the Lord and made them commit great sin. The people of Israel walked in all the sins that Jeroboam did. They did not depart from them until the Lord removed Israel out of his sight, as he had spoken by all his servants, the prophets. So Israel was exiled from their own land to Assyria until this day. Why? Because they walked in the sins of Jeroboam. And yet, while the kings of Israel were almost to a person wicked, doing what was evil in God's sight, the kings of Judah were better and worse, more better. But then after the reign of the last king of Israel, after they are taken into exile, Judah then radically oscillates back and forth from good king to bad king. About this time, Ahaz is ruling in Judah, and God sends his prophet Isaiah to warn him, trust me. I will defend and protect you, but Ahaz will not trust the Lord. Yet then his son, Hezekiah, radically pursues after the Lord. He is the first king in many years to destroy the high places and destroy idolatrous images. And it looks like Israel's going well until his son, Manasseh, comes on the throne and has a disastrous and wicked 55-year reign. He follows the practices of the wicked nations, even sacrificing his own children. And he rebuilt the very idolatrous places that Hezekiah destroyed. Not only that, you may remember that he built in the temple images to other gods, including to Asherah. 
And all of this stirred God to anger. And he promised the destruction of Judah would come. His son, Ammon, reigned for two years. And then he died. And his grandson, Josiah, became king at age eight. And for the last two weeks, we've looked at the great spiritual reformation that Josiah brought. Judah now swings back to the other side. And Josiah is a king unlike any other in returning the nation to honoring God. He went through all of Judah, all of Samaria, throughout the whole land, and removed all of the sacrifices and images to other gods. It said there was no greater king before him and no greater king after him. But we saw that even with all this wonderful spiritual reformations, it didn't remove God's wrath. We said that just as you can make a cake batter and with a rotten egg, you can't make it good by just adding more and more batter. To make that cake good, you have to get rid of the whole thing and start over. Josiah added a lot of good ingredients, but the cake was still bad. Israel and Judah, as we'll see this morning, needed a new king who can bring not just reformation, but regeneration. So we've just finished Josiah, and now how will Judah finish? And we come to that now, the second section, the humiliating collapse 2 Kings 23, 31 through 25, 26. And Josiah reigned well for many years. And yet in less than 25 years, everything that Josiah did is undone and the nation is ruined. As Keith was reading, he read of three kings and we'll look at four last kings. The first one is Jehoahaz, the son of Josiah. We read of him in chapter 23 and 31 and following. And tragically, he does not walk in the ways of Josiah, his father. But he doesn't have much time to do evil. For in only three months, he is removed by Pharaoh Necho. This leads to the second of the last four kings, Jehoiakim, who reigns 11 years, and Pharaoh makes him king. Now, Pharaoh also is forced, forces him to pay tribute. And you may have noticed... Verse 24 of chapter 34, chapter 23, that he forces him to change his name. We've probably all been on a playground or someplace and someone gives us a nickname and we don't like it. And we say, stop calling us that. And sometimes you may even, stop calling me that. You do everything you can to make him to stop. And if you can't, it's because they're more powerful than you. Here, Judah has the humiliation that they're saying, eh, we don't like your name. You're going to have this name now. Uh, do you want me to come back with my troops? Oh, that's a good name. I love that name. I'll take it. Judah is being subjugated. And here, Jehoiakim is paying tribute under this new name. And sadly, like his brothers, he does what is evil in God's sight. Now, the prophet Jeremiah lived during this time. And in the book of Jeremiah, we can read of three horrible things, three horrible practices that Jehoiakim does. First, in chapter 23, 33 of Jeremiah, the prophet's book, you can read that, yes, they had to pay tribute, and yes, we read here that Jehoiakim got some of the money from the people, and that's somewhat to be expected. Yes, I mean, he's probably not going to have all the resources to pay this tribute. You have to take some from the people, but while he's taking from the people, Jeremiah rebukes him, because he's expanding the palace. He's taking money from them while he's making his own life better. And not only that, he refuses to pay 
the workers. Second in Jeremiah 26, a prophet named Uriah comes and he speaks against Jehoiakim. And Jehoiakim does not do as his grandfather Josiah did and humble himself, weep before the Lord. Rather, he says, get that man. And Uriah the prophet knows that he is now a wanted man, so he flees to Egypt. But even in Egypt, Uriah is not safe. Jehoiakim so hates someone speaking against him that he sends people into Egypt to kidnap Uriah, bring him all the way back to Jerusalem, and kill Uriah in his presence. If that wasn't enough, third, God spoke to Jehoiakim through Jeremiah, through a prophet who wrote down the message. And when Jehoiakim got the message, he had his servant read it, and then he'd cut it off, and he'd throw it in the fire until the whole message was read and everything had been burned up. Jehoiakim is saying, I will not listen to anyone but me. This is who I follow, and I will get rid of anyone or anything else. And so during his reign, the Babylonians, they defeat Egypt, and then they come and lay a siege against Jehoiakim. And Jehoiakim will have to submit to this new master. So he's been subjugated by Egypt, now he's subjugated by Babylon and Nebuchadnezzar. And if you read Daniel 1, you'll know this is the time when Daniel and others are taken into exile. Yet it's not just Egyptians and Babylonians who are defeating and subjugating Judah. If you look at chapter 24, verse 2, it tells us, And the Lord, so God is sending them, sent against him bands of the Chaldeans and of the Syrians and of the Moabites and the Ammonites, and sent them against Judah to destroy it, according to the word of the Lord that he spoke. So God is sending these people because of their sin to discipline them. Notice the end of verse 4, though. It says, for he filled Jerusalem with innocent blood, and the Lord would not pardon. That is a scary statement. That Jehoiakim has reached a point in his life where God will no longer pardon him. God will no longer forgive him. Many people think of God the way they think of how U.S. presidents sometimes give pardons. At the end of their term, normally their second term, Presidents will give presidential pardons, and many of them you can understand a right maybe being made wrong, or sorry, wrong being made right. But some of them are the other way, that you're thinking, that's a right being made wrong. That's being, that person is being pardoned only because they're a friend of the president. They should be punished for what they did. And many people think of God like that. Well, God's my friend, so he's, he's just going to let me off the hook. He'll just pardon me. It's no big deal. I don't really need to suffer. And even the prophets in that day were saying that. Jeremiah 5.12, they're false prophets saying, well, God would never allow destruction to come to Jerusalem. He'd never allow anything to happen to his temple. We're his people. We're on his side. And yet God does bring destruction and judgment upon his people. We see here that he will no longer pardon. Now, from a human perspective, anyone can come to the Lord at any time. Yet from a divine perspective, there is a time in which God will no longer incline a person to want that anymore. And so don't wait. Many people have this tragic thought, oh, well, what I'm going to do is I'm going to live it up. I'm going to enjoy life, put that in quotes. And then when I get older, then I'll get serious about God. 
And yet there's two major problems with that. First, it's the idea that to enjoy life, you have to disobey God. What kind of trust are you later going to have if you're going, well, I trust you, God, that now I don't get to enjoy life. <laughs> That's not any trust. To come to God is to know that He's giving you what's best. He's giving you what you deserve, what you need, what will bring your greatest joy. As well, you shouldn't count on the fact that when you're later, you'll want to. God may allow you to continue in your heart and heart so that there never comes a day when you want to come to Him. When we lived in Ohio, there was a man whose 25-year-old granddaughter started coming to church. She expressed interest, but she said, I just don't think I'm ready now to trust, to submit to Him. And then tragically, one day, she took a turn too quick. Her car flipped, and she died. Now, I don't know what happened from the last time I saw her to that moment. Perhaps she did trust in Christ, and yet we do not know the day in which we'll stand before God. We should trust Him today. There might become a point when God says, you no longer have a chance to receive my forgiveness. But we're told no more of Jehoiakim's reign, but his son Jehoiakim now begins to reign in chapter 24, 5 through 6. And he doesn't follow after God either, and thus the enemies keep attacking. Another siege comes from Babylon against Jerusalem. And Jehoiakim, rather than holding out eventually, very quickly after three months, says, let's just surrender. So he and many others are taken into captivity to Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar, you can read verse 13, he empties out the treasuries. He empties the temple. He takes valuable possessions and gold. Not only that, but verse 14, he takes royal officials, mighty men, and men skilled in trade. If you read the book of Ezekiel, you'll know that this is when Ezekiel was taken into captivity. Nebuchadnezzar did leave some, the poor of the poor. Y'all can stay. I don't really need you in my land. And with Jeconiah being taken out, Nebuchadnezzar makes Mataniah, Jehoiakim's uncle king, and changes his name to Zedekiah. Again, the foreign nations are able to dictate what they do, even down to the names that they have. So the downfall continues for Zedekiah also does not do what is right in God's eyes. Jeremiah will tell us, 21 and Jeremiah 34, that Zedekiah was a man basically who rode the fence. He would come to Jeremiah in times and say, what does God say? But he didn't want to do it. He just wanted to hear God's word without actually responding to it. Thus verse 20 of chapter 24 says, For because of the anger of the Lord, it came to the point in Jerusalem and Judah that he cast them out from his presence. You know, the temple still at this point, chapter 2420, stands. But is standing only in symbol and in physical presence because God's presence has left the temple. We're not going to read all of chapter 25, but you can see in there that they are going to fall because Zedekiah foolishly rebels against Babylon. Thus, Nebuchadnezzar, he comes and he lays another siege, the third siege since Josiah has reigned. And they soon run out of food and water. So chapter 25, 2 through 4, the soldiers in desperation at night, they make a hole in their own city wall. And then they go running into the countryside. And then in a great sad and tragic irony, 
they finally get caught and they get defeated at Jericho. It's as if Israel is completely coming undone. The very place where they had their first military victory is where they have their last military defeat. It's as though God is going back in history and removing everything that he has done for them. As they've lost God's presence, it is now causing everything else to fall apart. Zedekiah has a tragic end to his reign because when they capture him, they haul him and everyone back to Babylon and there it tells us they kill his sons in front of his eyes and then they take his eyes out. Burn in his image, the last thing he ever saw was his own children being put to death. Yet Judah falls even lower because Nebuchadnezzar is not content just to bring the people. He sends new soldiers back and like Sherman's march through the south, they either destroy or take home everything. They take all the bronze items of worship. They take all the tools for worship. Everything that is valuable. Every gold, silver, bronze thing they hack up, store up, ship back. And then they throw the gas and the match. And it all burns down. Not only that, the wall of Jerusalem is destroyed. Judah is completely destroyed. As if that all were not enough. They then take all the religious leaders, all the political leaders, and they kill them. And then they put Gedaliah in charge of this charred and barren land. And yet, as if that wasn't enough, some Israelites then go and assassinate him. But look at what follows this assassination. In verse 26, chapter 25, Then all the people both small and great, and the captains of the forces arose and went to Egypt. They are fleeing to the very place where God first redeemed them. Judah is no more. The people have gone, the temple is gone, the wall is gone, and it seems like it's done. Israel's over. There is no hope. We have seen a complete end of Judah. Saul, it began, as we noted in the sermon, it began, everything's looking great. Solomon's on the throne. We got peace. We got prosperity. We got God's presence. And yet they didn't continue in following after the Lord. And so since they lost the most important thing, God and his presence due to their sin, God removes all the other blessings to discipline them, to chastise them. And all of this is really just a fulfillment of what God had already warned. Deuteronomy 28, God warned Israel that this would happen. Even Solomon's prayer of dedication of the temple, 1 Kings 8, he talks about what they should do if they sin and they're taken into exile. They know this is the threat of what happens if they forsake the Lord. So now that it has happened, how should they respond? How do people live in exile? Now, this is not just a question for them, because First Peter, we're told that we are strangers and exiles. How do we live as people who this is not our homeland? Now, literally, on one hand, we could take years to discuss this, because from this book, from these events come the book of Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Daniel and Esther. 
we could spend years going over, well, how do you respond? Well, you got to read every one of those books and understand. But we can take a little bit shorter stance and look at the big picture of how you should respond. And we're going to look at four things. They should lament. They should return. They should flourish. They should hope. And I'll go over those again. If you need a nice little sound, it's Rafa. Okay, that wasn't a nice little sound, but that's what it is. L-R-F-H. Lament, return, flourish, hope. Now we're going to do some turning around. So if you have something to leave in 2 Kings 25, do that. And turn to the book of Lamentations. Because while there's many psalms that we could look at in regards to lament, probably the best place to turn is the book of Lamentations, right after the prophecy of Jeremiah and before the prophecy of Ezekiel. Lamentations 1, by the prophet Jeremiah, right after Jerusalem has been destroyed, this is what he says, Lamentations 1, verse 20 and 21. Look, O Lord, for I am in distress. My stomach churns. My heart is wrung within me because I have been very rebellious. In the street, the sword bereaves. In the house, it is like death. They heard my groaning, yet there is no one to comfort me. All my enemies heard of my trouble. They are glad that you have done it. You have brought the day you announced. Now let them be as I am. Look over chapter 2, verse 11. My eyes are spent with weeping. My stomach churns. My bile is poured out to the ground because of the destruction of the daughter of my people. Because infants and babies faint in the streets of the city. Or look at chapter 3, verses 14 through 20. I have become the laughing stock of all peoples, the object of their taunts all day long. He has filled me with bitterness. He has sated me with wormwood. He has made my teeth grind on gravel and made me cower in ashes. My soul is bereft of peace. I have forgotten what happiness is. So I say my endurance has perished. So has my hope from the Lord. Remember my affliction and my wanderings, the wormwood and the gall. My soul continually remembers it and is bowed down within me. Now it's important to recognize these are the words of Jeremiah, the faithful prophet. This is not some rebellious Judite who's going, man, this is horrible. Why did this happen to us? This is Jeremiah who recognizes his sin, their sin, and he is still weeping. And I say that because sometimes as a society, and sometimes as Christians, we don't know how to weep. We look down on lamenting. Yes, you can be sad for a moment, but some of the words in here, I think Christians would feel uncomfortable praying in front of others. That's a little too sad. Don't you trust in the Lord? Now, please don't hear me here. Mishear me here. I do hope you hear me. Don't mishear me. Sometimes we're so busy celebrating someone's life that we forget that Paul's words say we don't grieve as those without hope he doesn't say we don't grieve stop he says we don't grieve as without hope there is a time to celebrate life this person was so wonderful and we rejoice that now they're in a better place but we're not yet in the better place and the more you celebrate their life which again is good I'm not denigrating those things the more it causes mourning here. They're no longer able to be at this event. They no longer provide that comfort or that joy or that place in your life. And as Christians, we should learn 
to lament. Sadly, I think many Christians treat their spiritual, their emotional scars the way they treat some wounds. And that is they just keep putting band-aids on top. It's going to hurt too much to get that knee that was all scraped up to get in there and get all that dirt out and pour that peroxide and ah, it hurts. That's going to hurt. So just throw a band-aid over it. And yet until you get in there and get all the way in and get all of it out and go a little bit deeper in your pain and lean into it, you're only going to hurt longer in the long run. You're going to hurt more. We need to learn to lament. I've put several books over there. One of them is Dark Clouds, Deep Mercy, a book showing us the grace of lament. God has put throughout His Word psalms in the book of Lamentations to show there's nothing that's saying you're not trusting in God to say my soul is in distress because of what's going on around me. And Jeremiah models this lamenting. But the second thing that we see they should do is they should return. You're lamenting is pointless if the thing you're lamenting for, you can actually change. If you're sitting in your living room crying because your house is flooding, but you just don't go turn it off, well, that's foolish. Just get up, go turn the water off. Stop lamenting. Take care of the problem. And if they're going to lament because of their problems that came from their sin, but they're not going to return to the Lord, then they should just stop lamenting. And so they are going to be called to return. Lamentations 3, verse 40. He says, Let us test and examine our ways and return to the Lord. Let us lift up our hearts and hands to God in heaven. We have transgressed and rebelled, and you have not forgiven. And they can know that if they will return to the Lord, they'll be forgiven. Deuteronomy chapter 30. After Moses gave all these warnings in Deuteronomy 28, that if you do these things, you'll be punished, you'll go into exile. In Deuteronomy 30, he says, And when all these things come upon you, the blessings and the curse which I have set before you, and you called them to mind among all the nations where the Lord your God has driven you, just like right now, and you return to the Lord your God, you and your children, and you obey His voice and all that I command you today, with all your heart and with all your soul, then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes and have mercy on you. So, yes, they need to lament, but they also need to return. They need to confess their sins. Solomon, as we mentioned earlier in 1 Kings 8, in his prayer of dedication to the temple, mentioned going into exile, and he mentioned this same thing of returning to the Lord when this happens. And tragically, many Christians live like Judah and that either they don't think God will ever judge them for their ongoing sin, or there's no need to change. Some Christians have called this type of preaching cheap grace. And Dietrich Bonhoeffer, in his famous work, The Cost of Discipleship, describes it this way. Cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring, requiring repentance. Baptism without church discipline. Communion without confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship. Grace without the cross. Grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. So we should lament when life is going wrong. But if it's due to our sin, and sometimes it's not in a fallen world, sometimes it's just living in a fallen world. But if there is rebellion, let us return to God. Flee from our sin and know His life 
life-changing grace. Now, hopefully you held your spot in 2 Kings 25. Hold your spot here in Lamentations chapter 3, because we're going to flip over to some well-known verses, Jeremiah 29. So you've got to go back one book, Jeremiah 29, holding your spot, Lamentations 3. Because the third thing they need to do is they need to flourish. So they need to lament, they need to return, and they need to flourish where they are now placed. Jeremiah 29 is a fascinating chapter. There's these people of God, the Israelites, in exile, and so they write to Jeremiah and say, well, what should we do? I mean, we're living in this new land. How should we respond? And we read Jeremiah 29, beginning in verse 1, and then jumping down to verse 5. These are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders of the exiles. I'm going to jump down to verse 5 now. So this is what he commands them. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. And take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. God's exiles. Whether that be them or us as strangers and exiles today should seek to flourish and seek the flourishing of those around us wherever God has put us. Yes, we seek first His kingdom and His righteousness. But we don't do that in some kind of Gnostic sense in that we only focus on spiritual stuff. That physical stuff is bad. No. Jeremiah's list has very day-to-day physical things. Build a house, grow a garden and eat your vegetables, have your kids get married, have them grow up and have kids, seek the city's welfare, pray for the city, seek good where you are. In other words, Israel, the issue is not what place you're in. You don't need to be in Jerusalem to honor God. We don't need to be in heaven to honor God. Where God has put you, seek to flourish there. And there, even in a pagan land, you can honor God. And then we see this flushed out, In the Old Testament, Daniel, Esther, Nehemiah, and we could mention others, they then live this out. They live faithfully where God has placed them, serving the evil empires of Assyria and Babylon. And they serve them and do their good until those empires tell them to sin. And then they say, no, we must obey God rather than men. But fourth and lastly, besides lamenting, returning, and flourishing, we should live with hope. We finish in verse 7 of Jeremiah 29. Look down at verse 10 and following. For thus says the Lord, Jeremiah 29 verse 10, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I'll fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord. I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. Now you may, in the middle of that, be like, oh, I know that verse. Verse 11 is on many a t-shirt, many a house, wall. 
in Christians' homes. And yet that verse has a very important context. And that is, God says, I have a blessing, I have a future for you in 70 years. I don't think I'm going to be around in 70 years. And so this is a promise to the people we're hearing, to their children who might be alive, but more to their grandchildren. God's promises of hope are not saying every day now is always going to get better. But he has a plan. He's saying that he will work everything out. Our hope is that God loves us so much that he'll always do what is best for us. Even if that means discipline, driving a nation to its knees so that they will lament and return to him. God has a perfect plan. Now I ask you to hold your spot in Lamentations 3 because there, even in the midst of his weeping, Jeremiah had that hope. We read Lamentations 3, 14 through 20, but notice Lamentations 3, verse 29, after 21, after this great agony, he says, but this I call to mind, Lamentations 3, 21, and therefore I have hope. Wait, how, we just read of all this lamenting. How can he have hope? The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. That is his hope. God's character, God's promises. And flip back to 2 Kings 25. We'll look at the last few verses and wrap up here. Because in the last few verses of 2 Kings 25, verse 27, it says this. And in the 37th year of the exile of Jehoiakim, king of Judah. Now, I'm going to pause for a second. I get confused reading this, so I'm sure you're completely lost. Who's Jehoiakim? Okay, he was the third king. Remember, there was a three-month reign, then 11 years, then three months, 11 years. He's the third one, the three-month reign, who barely was on the throne, and he surrendered to Nebuchadnezzar. And he's been sitting in prison for, what's it say? The 37th year of the exile. He's been in a prison cell for 30 seven years put yourself in that 37 years of your life all you see is bars that seems like a hopeless situation but it goes on in the 12th month on the 27th day of the month evil Moradoc, king of babylon in the year that he began to reign graciously freed jehoiakim king of judah from prison and he spoke kindly to him and gave him a seat above the seats of the kings who were with them in Babylon. So Jehoiakim put off his prison garments, and every day of his life he dined regularly at the king's table. And for his allowance, a regular allowance was given him by the king according to his daily needs as long as he lived. Now the most natural end of this book seems like verse 26. They're in exile. It's over. And yet the author is trying to show there is a flicker of light. There is hope. Why is there hope? Because the heart of the king is in the hand of the Lord and he turns it wherever he wishes. So he can keep a son of David in a prison cell safe for 37 years and then say now is the time for that root of Jesse to grow back again. 
You may remember Isaiah's prophecy in there. Isaiah 10, he foretells of all the destruction of Israel, that they'll be leveled like a forest. And that's what happened. Jerusalem was laid bare. And then Isaiah 11, 11, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. It looks hopeless. It looks as though they have been conquered, and yet God is still showing there's a flicker of light. And then if, we won't turn there, but if you turn to Matthew, you could read that Jehoiakim will then have a descendant, and they'll have a descendant. It'll go for 14 descendants, and then there'll be someone whose name is Jesus. Emmanuel, God with us. So the temple in Jerusalem can be gone, but God's presence is gone because a son of David, a king of kings, better than any king we've looked at here, even better than Josiah, is the king who does not just bring reformation, he brings regeneration. He came so that we would always have God's presence. He came so that we would always have peace. He came so that we'd always have prosperity. Not now. Now we are still strangers and exiles. But we look to the day when his kingdom is fully established. And so kings is reminding us. Human kings will come and go. But the king of kings came and he'll come again. And then we'll be with him forever. Let's pray. Oh Lord, may we find hope in that kingdom. May we find hope not in all the things of this world that are constantly saying, if you have this, life will be better. If you have this. Lord, in this world, we will have tribulation, but we take good cheer because you and your son have overcome the world. And so we long for the day when your son will return and we will be with him, the King of kings and Lord of lords. It's in his name we pray. Amen.